Tell me about the best team you ever played on, any sport, any time. What made that team great? Questions like that. Get that stuff out of them. And then ultimately, I'm going to ask them questions like, if you could have a three-hour lunch with anybody on the planet, who would you pick and why? Some of them are going to open up their heart like Sean Smith did, number 75 from uh, Kansas. And he said, well, Roger, be my dad. And I said, why, Sean? Well, I knew why. His teammates didn't know why. He said, my dad died 10 days ago. I'd love to have lunch with him. You think that team won't commit to that guy? Freshman dude, he rips open his heart and bam, it's on. Hey, it's a great day to get better. Greetings. Welcome back to another episode of Becoming Undone, the podcast for those who dare bravely, risk mightily, and grow relentlessly. Join me, Toby Brooks, as I invite a new guest each week to examine how high achievers can transform from falling apart to falling into place. For author and longtime sports chaplain Roger Leip, early dreams of success in sport didn't really materialize the way he'd planned. As happens with lots of us, the responsibilities of life came calling, and he found himself in a job that not only wasn't stoking his passion, but also making it difficult to provide for his family. In a bold move, he stepped out in faith in an entirely new direction, and he's been serving athletes, coaches, and others in athletics ever since. Long-serving Southern Illinois University Carbondale and around the globe, his most recent move is as a character coach for Nations of Coaches, where he helps teams connect and build trust while they compete. Now a 15-time published author, his work has been translated into countless languages and has been used all over the world. I hope you'll enjoy episode 40, Champion, with my dear friend, Roger Leib. Man, this week I'm super stoked. Uh, Roger Leib and I go way back. He was a mentor for me. This is not my story, but uh, I was just coming off a, a really tough breakup, a, a, mm. uh, an engagement that dissolved. And I was really reeling. And if it weren't for the FCA, for Brandon Anderson, who was a guest previously, Vina Clendenin, uh, Ryan Hallahan, just an incredible group of, of friends who emerged kind of out of the ether and led by this man, Roger Leip, who was a longtime director of FCA at SIU. Today, he's a character coach, director for Nations of Coaches, longtime sports chaplain, 14-time plus author, new book coming out, which we'll talk about. Roger, awesome to have you. My great pleasure. Thanks so much, Toby. So you've kind of heard the format and, you know, I'm really excited about this because as much as I've heard you minister to people and speak life into people, I've heard you kind of, I don't know, work around the edges of your wrestling career, but I've never really heard your story. So I'm super excited. So let's start at the beginning, wherever that was for you. Wow. Well, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm a guy who grew up in Southern Illinois and my family roots go back to the 1700s here. So we're very much Southern Illinois in, in all the pluses and minuses of that, <laughs> all the things that go with that. And growing up in a blue collar community, uh, Carbondale is with a university dropped into the middle of it, uh, very much in that blue collar ethic and um, was pretty much a mediocre high school uh, student. And pretty mediocre high school wrestler. Loved the sport. It shaped the way I think. I still think like a wrestler. I wake up in the morning looking for a fight every day. Let's let's go. (laughs) And so those things really shaped me. I became a much better official of wrestling than I ever was a wrestler. But at the same time, meeting my wife in third grade and then finally getting a date at 11th grade and 
<laughs> being smitten with that girl. Um, after one year at a JUCO nearby and being bored to tears in school, it seemed like the natural course of things to get a job and go to work and get married. So I did quit school and honestly never went back and have regretted that over the years at times. But then some of the friends that I chose in my early twenties and uh, on through my thirties really shaped and helped me discover that, yeah, you can learn even if you didn't go to college, you can, you can learn these things. You can grow. You can develop over time. And so having friends who challenged me to read Francis Schaeffer, C.S. Lewis, Oz Guinness, a number of other authors that have just really impacted my life, those things really helped me grow and develop uh, in spite of not having a formal education. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the downside of my story, some of the regrettable parts. But at the same time, now I'm coming up on 48 years of marriage to that same girl and son and daughter-in-law and granddaughters. And life's pretty good today. Yeah. I think it's, we never really know what to expect. And a big focus of this show has been that transition out of sport. Mm-hmm. And I know you've certainly helped minister countless athletes through that, but curious for you. So it's one thing to be successful at sport. It's another to love it. Those don't always have to occur together. What was transition out of competition like for you? Well, I I went into officiating partly because I loved the sport of wrestling and wasn't good enough to do it in college, but I knew I could stay around it if I officiated the sport. Mm -hmm. And so I dabbled in that a little bit on the early side and then found out that I was could be good at this and then really applied myself to be better at it. And then I remember watching a tournament one time when I was, I thought I'm not good enough to do this uh, regional tournament, but then I'm, I'm working the scorebook for the, the host tournament uh, team. And I'm watching the guys that they had assigned to this thing. I'm, I'm better than that guy. Good grief. So I said, yes, let me in. And so then that, that led to a series of better and better tournaments, better and better matches, better and better uh, tournament being positioned in those things. And man, I grew to love it. So that let me stay around the sport longer. But, you know, I also began to play racquetball, played lots and lots of fast pitch softball, played slow pitch softball, did all kinds of things just because I love sport. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kind of stayed engaged with it, but it was the wrestling officiating that really fed the competitive part of me because I prepared for those matches that I'm officiating in the same way I did for matches. Because for me, it was a matter of I want to do this excellently, mm-hmm. and for me, it was a, it was a matter of worship. It was a it was a ministry to the players and the coaches that that was my mindset way back then when I had hair and a flat belly. <laughs> That's funny. So you're now a fourteen going on fifteen time author, and mm-hmm. you mentioned not necessarily the best student back in your school days. Yeah. What what were your dreams back then? I mean, I'm guessing author and full-time sports chaplain didn't make the list. What no. was young Roger aspiring to be? Grade school Roger wanted to be a major league baseball player. Mm-hmm. Been a Cardinal fan since the Yankees traded Roger Maris to the to the Cardinals and was haven't been there since earlier this season, but I just Love that, the way they approach the game, their, their mindset toward baseball. 
And that's what I loved playing when I was a kid and uh, wasn't particularly good at it, but I loved it. And there was a love for sport, love for competition. That was part of why wrestling was great because it's just you and the other guy. There's nobody else to blame. It's intensely competitive. I'm kind of a competitive and intense person. So it fit my personality, probably shaped my personality as much or more than anything else. And it kind of developed tenacity in me and a refusal to quit. And some of those characteristics that are still there at days short of 67. Mm-hmm. So you entered the workforce and eventually you end up in ministry. What was that transition like? Well, were you, I mean, did you, did you sense that there was a larger purpose that you weren't fulfilling? Was, was, was there a pull toward or a push from? Yeah. Both at 16, I I was part of the Jesus movement and the development of that from California, this, you know, the Jesus revolution film. I mean, I I was in part of that last scene in that stadium in Dallas. I was one of those knucklehead kids down there. From that moment, I had a sense of calling that God was calling me to do something. But being a kid from Carbondale, growing up in a Southern Baptist church, there were two options for ministry. One was be a pastor. And I thought, I'd be a really bad pastor or you could be a missionary to someplace you can't pronounce. I thought that doesn't, they don't even play baseball there. Why would I go to those places? But so neither of those seemed to fit. And so I was adrift in terms of, I have this calling, but don't know what to do with it. And then marriage and then sport. And then, I mean, all these other things, you gotta have, you got a job, you got to do it. And so worked in the building industry in like home centers, lumber yards and, eventually a a wholesale distribution company that sells to those places. And that's where I learned to travel and to be way outside my box uh, in terms of meeting people and probably develop the off the chart extroversion that I have. And then uh, other things of being dissatisfied all the time and trying this other thing, try this other thing. And eventually it took one year of absolute horrible failure in business. There's that word family failure we run from it we fear it we try to explain it away but why because it's painful it's sometimes embarrassing and almost all the time it hurts roger had felt a calling on his life at a young age but he wasn't sure exactly what shape that might take so he went on with his life and he pursued a career until the bottom fell out of that and he found himself again searching for purpose the thing about pain is that it demands a response You can ignore it for a while, but it usually just keeps getting worse. For Roger, the discomfort of a particularly bad year in sales meant he was finally ready to revisit his life's purpose. And that willingness to sort through pain, well, that led to a redirection and a discovery of possibilities that he'd never fully considered before. A temporary failure opened the door to a lifetime of success. In a full commission job, if you sell stuff, you make money. If you don't sell anything, you don't make any money. My wife hated it. It was terribly insecure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ministry with which I had been volunteering for a few years offered me a position with a terribly small salary, but she loved it because it had the word salary on it, <laughs> and she knew what to expect at the end of the month. And so I jumped in, partly kicked out of the business world, but drawn into this ministry world and working the next four years for my mentor really kind of replaced what would have been college and seminary for me 
just be riding in the car with that guy, working together, traveling abroad, doing some other things like that really kind of supercharged what my life in Christ and my skills to be able to make the next step, which was then FCA in 1994. Mm -hmm. There's certainly been a big pivot for young people where your generation and even my generation as a Gen X are like, we made our own way. And I find myself guilty as well at times where you want to be that lawnmower parent that's clearing the path for your kid or the helicopter parent that's hovering over. No doubt. But if we overprotect, we, we rob those under our charge of the value of failure. And it's been said and by, by a smarter person than me that we'll learn more in failure than we would have in success many times. What did that failure teach you that you think maybe if you had just kind of idled along and grown as a salesperson, you wouldn't have learned? One that uh, failure is not terminal. One can recover from it. I often tell young people now, it's like I've been talking with uh, guys who are just graduating and trying to make the next step in their playing career. And often I'm telling them, look, let's suppose you make this choice and it's horrible. You may, It's just bad, 100%. It's only a year. You can recover from it. It's not that big a deal. You can come back. It's, it's not that bad. Do your best to make the best decision possible. But in the worst case scenario, you can still come back. I said, look, I've failed plenty. I'm not scared of it anymore. Let's take some risks. Let's get after things. Yeah. So making that jump from, in your case, it's kind of the opposite of the way I tend to see it, where we jump from something that's safe and known into something that's unknown. You kind of did the opposite. You went from, you know, no no ceiling, but also no floor in a full commission job to a steady income and promise of training. So yeah. when you're standing on the edge of that possibility, what did what did that job opportunity offer that continuing down that path wouldn't have given you? Great question. And it was very simply this. It gave me the opportunity to pursue the calling that I thought I had. The mm-hmm. thing was still echoing in the back of my mind from 16 years of age. Here I was at 30, uh, 29, 30. Anyway, all of a sudden I, I can see it and I can almost touch it. Like it's right there. Let's go after this. Um, but that was it. It was the sense of purpose why did God make me and how can I go after that? And to, to kind of draw the, the sporting thoughts full circle, I remember in 1980 watching the film Chariots of Fire. And uh, up until this point in my life in Christ and my life in sport in particular, I had been a very dualistic kind of person that, you know what, I love to compete. I'm going to go stinking hard. But I could hear people at church saying, Raj, play nice. I hate playing nice. I love to play really hard. Mm-hmm. So if they're, if I'm playing baseball and I'm a first base runner and there's a ground ball to short, you better believe I'm taking out the second baseman. Why? To be a good teammate, I need to break up the double play. Mm-hmm. But it's, if I did, I can hear in the back of my head, people play nice, play nice. So I'm condemned either way. If I fail to take the guy out, I'm a bad teammate because I didn't do the right thing by the game. So I'm stuck in a terrible catch-22. Yeah. But here I am watching Eric Little on that film run in the 1924 Olympic Games, and his heart is just 
oozing out of every pore of that guy's being as he runs in the 400-meter final. And he's standing there saying, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. <laughs> and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What a powerful quote and an incredible sentiment. That word purpose can be so incredibly important on our journeys from falling apart to falling into place. It's clarity of purpose that helps us realize that our pains are temporary. It's purpose that draws us toward the goals and the dreams and the impact that we have ahead. And it is purpose that fuels us as we make our way from injured to impactful. In a moment of crystal clarity, Roger saw how he could reconcile his competitive spirit with his faith in a way that wasn't just refreshing for him, but powerful and inspiring for the competitive athletes he would continue to serve throughout his career. Here I am in the theater going, <laughs> I desperately want to be that guy. Yeah. I want a, a sense of integrity about this. They're, they're, these things are not opposing each other. My life in Christ and my life in sport. Can I get them to fit together? And suddenly that unlocked for me is the thing I still drive players toward is a sense of integrity about their life in sport as opposed to a set of competing interests. Let's be whole. Let's be yeah. together and experience the richness that comes from that. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I have both operated in collegiate athletics for a long time, and, mm -hmm. and we haven't been at the Georges or the, you know, the, the blue blood. We've been at, at schools where, you know, every year you'll have a few guys or gals who, who have a shot potentially playing at the next level, but mm -hmm. rarely mm -hmm. is it a sure thing. And for a lot of them, they labor and kind of bounce around and, and there's always that sense of, am I chasing this out of vanity? Is yeah. this meant to be, should I just go on and do other things? And so what do you think that experience going from sales yeah. to eventually into ministry, how does that impact how you counsel people who are searching for that purpose and, and struggling with whether or not to give up on a dream and go do the sensible thing or to stick it out and maybe become someone who, who made a roster, who made a difference, who, mm -hmm. who ultimately did achieve their goal. Hadn't thought about it much until you just said this, but um, when I look back at how I talk with players about that very issue of, should I take a shot at this thing? I invariably tell them, go, do it. Take your best shot. I remember telling Ryan Hallahan that. I said, look, they're not calling you if you don't go to the workout. If you don't go to the – no, they're not calling. But if you go and you just blow the thing up, maybe they call you. But they're certainly not calling if you don't go. So take the risk. Go out there. Do it. I remember watching him play in the game um, – might have been in Louisville, but I remember that guy doing that, taking his best shot, and he could walk away knowing I took a big shot at it. Mm -hmm. Now that dude's a big shot in San Diego PD. I'm like, I'm proud of that guy. But he didn't turn into Harry High School wearing his letter jacket at age 40 going, <laughs> well, I probably could have played in the league. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Take your shot or shut up. Yeah. And so that's what I tell guys. I remember there was a player, linebacker for us a few years ago, I'm watching him late in the season. I'm standing on the sideline watching him chase a play across the field. He had a back injury. The dude running like an old man. I ran better than he did. And then like the next week, I'm standing there by him as the last practice of the last season of the, the last game of the season. And I'm saying, 
all right, what are you going to do here when the season's over? He said, I think I'm going to train and take a shot at the NFL. And I kind of looked at him and hopefully I, I didn't emote on my face what I was thinking because I'm thinking, dude, you can't even run now. What do you could? <laughs> then I looked at him. And I said, son, go for it. Take your best shot. And you know what? That dude did not get drafted, signed a free agent deal. He played three years for the Miami Dolphins. Wow. And I'm like, I saw him for breakfast one day at Mary Lou's the, um, in the offseason. I said, man, I'm proud of you. You took your best shot and you succeeded. Good for you. Yeah. I struggle with this one because I'll have students sometimes who, you know, they're on the verge of, of failing out of the program or maybe yeah. they, they have to retake a course, which means they're out a whole year and they have to come oh. back. And, and I struggle with how to counsel them in that moment. And, and I'm always reminded for myself there's a scene in Rudy where Rudy's at the bus stop getting ready to go to South Bend and his dad comes and talks to him and his dad being the voice of reason. And, and so many times I feel like I have this conversation with myself instead of having the courage to take the big swing, to do the thing that it takes starting a podcast or, you know, yeah. whatever it is that I'm terrified of. My Rudy dad comes and sits down in my brain and says, you can live a damn fine life being a Rudiger. Mm. There's nothing, you know, Notre Dame's made for elite athletes. It's not made for you. But the world does a pretty good job of, of, of putting people and naysayers in our path yeah. that will do that. You yeah. take a different path. Yeah, you speak encouragement and life and light into people. And I'm just, I'm curious your, your take on that. Yeah, I couldn't live with myself otherwise uh, because I know most of the best things that I have done in terms of accomplishment or even more than accomplishment, fulfillment and significance is be, it came at the cost of risk. Absolutely. There are no guarantees, but the best stuff has happened because I'm willing to take the risk, mm -hmm. whether that's traveling to parts of the world where I don't know anybody and I'm going to show up and hopefully a dude's going to meet me at the airport and we're going to go. I'm going anyway. Uh, but it's like um, even got in trouble with my wife last summer because I said, look, baby, I'm not asking for permission. I am going. And uh, that, that took a while to overcome. But uh, it was for me, it was worth the risk because I was really connected with the people I was going to go serve. And man, the travel there was bad. The travel back was bad. But the time when I was on the ground with those guys was outstanding yeah. it was worth it because there was significance attached to it not just a box to tick it wasn't just um you know something on your bucket list no 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 no. this had significance to it more than some fleeting hey let's go do a crazy thing nah yeah so so you leave sales and go into ministry mm -hmm. uh, by the time i met you you were chaplain at siu and and had served in that role but there was more to that job than we realized being an fca mm -hmm. staff member meant you were serving a huge rural geographic area very big what was that season of life like for you and, and what did you learn that you still brought forward with you into your role today yeah, I spent a lot of hours in the car trying to go see places, trying to pioneer this ministry into new communities, connecting with people. Thankfully, my ministry with uh, my mentor's ministry was deeply involved with um, volunteers. And so most of what I learned about leading volunteers came 
as a benefit of uh, having worked there because virtually everybody I worked with in FCA was a, a volunteer also. All those huddle coaches scattered out in schools all over the place. One has to lead them differently than he does if you're leading um, employees. You know what I mean? Leverage. You have to, it's all relational. And so that really enhanced what I did. A large part of what I learned was how to do that well uh, to get people onto your team and keep them on your team and nurture and develop those people. That was a huge thing. And then, but that also gave me a, a place to experiment with things like writing, like uh, leading camps, like doing other things to help develop ministry in sport that was for the sports people, uh, not really for fans. But, and so I keep, I still have opportunities to do that in the U.S. and abroad. And uh, man, that's some of the richest stuff I get to do to see things we cook up in my house in Carbondale suddenly have an impact in Kazakhstan and Ukraine and Russia. And that's pretty rich for a, a dude from Carbondale. <laughs> that's awesome. So you, you spent several years at SIU. During that time, and I remember getting your emails. I think I'm still on your list. <laughs> and, and those kind of regular devotionals. Yeah. Where did the the thought of I'm going to turn this into a book or yeah. expand my reach beyond? I don't know. I don't know what your highest number of student athletes at SIU, but anywhere from 20 to 40 yeah. that, that probably attend your your weekly get-togethers. Mm -hmm. But certainly now your book is it's been interpreted in other languages. It's gone around the world. Where yeah. did that idea spark from? It's funny because the, the writing of the the stuff for the very beginning was very haphazard and backward, as is often my case. I stumble into things. Um, women's basketball at Southern, I had just kind of been given entrance. Brando was on this team. They started the season. Mary Helen Walker was a friend of ours, and I'm at practice a couple of times, and I'm watching them, and exhibition games coming along. Mary Helen said, Raj, we're not very good. We can't concentrate. We don't have any intensity. We don't. She listened about the three or four things that are my best stuff, and I thought, what am I, what am I going to do? I thought, encouragement is probably my – if I had a gift, that's probably it. And so I thought I will sit down and write a letter to the team. So I crank out some letter on my letterhead, and while I'm writing the letter trying to encourage them, Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17 popped into my head, and I was like, ah, throw that in there and put that in there and then finish the note and wrote it. I also wrote a note to the head coach, Cindy Scott, and I said, Coach, here's love to serve your team. I'll do anything I can to help you put both letters in an envelope, uh, two envelopes, and handed them to Mary Helen. I said, now, look, if either of these things are too forward, throw them in the trash. I don't want to jeopardize anything with you and the head coach. You go, okay, well, here comes pregame. They do all the warm-up. They come walking up to the floor for the tip-off. Mary Helen walks by the by the bench, and she looks back at me. She says, she read the letter to the team. And I'm going, Oh, oh Lord, we really need to play well tonight. And, <laughs> and at, at the end of the first half, we're up 20. Mary Helen walks by, write more letters. <laughs> I said, play another half. <laughs> well, how do you follow that? We wound up winning by 24 or something. And so suddenly I'm writing, I'm how do you follow that? Well, keep writing more, I guess. And so I just kept doing that. And then the next season I had a more systematic way and wrote a you know a whole season's worth preseason and did it again and did it again and pretty soon I had enough stuff for a book and I thought maybe I could compile this stuff and I sent it to a publisher and he said yeah let's do it and I thought 
you're kidding me. <laughs> Blew me away. That was the beginning of it. Very backward, very, I don't, I don't even understand. But suddenly I was given favor in a remarkable way, both by Coach Scott, by the players, by the publisher, and all of a sudden here, here it goes. Yeah. The well, irony is so thick you can cut it with a knife. Sure. Well, to he who is faithful in a little, <laughs> more is given, right? Yeah. So in my mind, you'll forever be the face of SIU and, and of, of Southern Illinois FCA. And so when I saw that you were leaving that position, I was <laughs> stunned. And I'm sure you've heard this from other people. So today you're with Nations of Coaches and it wasn't a retirement. It was no. it was a, a reorientation. You you were just, you, you changed launch pads. Yeah. And, uh, and so talk to us today about your role with Nations of Coaches. Well, I've known the guys who run Nations of Coaches since the CEO was in a coaches huddle with me at a camp in North Carolina way back years, decades ago. We were in a group together, and so we'd kind of stayed roughly in touch over the years, and he was one of those guys getting my Monday morning devotions, and we've stayed in touch, and I guested on a couple of things they did, and we'd bump into each other once in a while and compare notes on people, and March of 2020, got a note from their CEO saying, our COO, saying, hey, there's a position we want to fill uh, of a character coach director Here's the job description. Do you know anybody who might fit this? Because I've got a pretty broad network of people who do this all over the world. And then he's in another paragraph and he says, and if it would interest you, we'd love to talk with you. Well, I opened the PDF, read that thing. And I thought, holy smoke, this looks like me. And sent it to a couple of my best friends. And they said, hey, are you sure you didn't write this for yourself? And I'm like, oh, gosh, I guess I have to talk to him now. And I thought, well, you know, I'll have three provisos. These three things must be, or I can't even think about it. And they went, check, check, check. Good idea. I'm like, oh, I guess I have to keep talking with them now. And started pursuing this and thinking about it and eight Zoom meetings and an in-person meeting and such later. And they're offering me a job. And I'm going, this is the thing I've been asking FCA to let me do for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And these guys want me to do it as the only thing that I do. In my work, my role with FCA, I had a bunch of roles and responsibilities that were central to my job. And then most of the character coach uh, sports chaplain stuff was on the edges. These guys gave me the opportunity to pull that right to the middle and to the, to do that exclusively. And so instead of doing things broadly and shallowly, I get to do them narrowly and deeply now. Mm -hmm. And at this stage in life, you know, I was about to turn 65 then. And I said, fellas, I'm about to turn 65. I have no interest in retirement. I'm ready to hit a new gear I think I have five to 10 years of go really hard in me. You want to go? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, now we're two years into that and um, it's going. Yeah. Well, you, you alluded to it when you were talking about your letter to coach Scott and, and it's something I've dealt with as an athletic trainer in a public institution and mm -hmm. this almost the sense that, especially for me, your role was you were employed through FCA. You weren't employed necessarily yeah. through the university. So you were yeah. there of your own accord and and bringing the Bible or bringing yeah. faith into the conversation maybe was, okay, Roger, he's, he's the church guy. Mm -hmm. Whereas for a lot of the staffers you work with, like I'm, if I'm employed by a state institution, then separation of church and state says that I can't really minister to someone unless they come to me seeking. Mm -hmm. So what counsel do you give to the, the 
the coaches that you work with, maybe primarily, but maybe also support staff who have ministry, they, they, they have a faith and yeah. ministry is a part of who they are, but in their role, they don't really feel like they can fully enact that. Yeah. I tell them very simply connect directly with your direct supervisor. Say, this is who I am. It's the same thing. I tell coaches when, if they're going to let me serve their team, say, coach, tell me where the boundaries are. I'll play within the boundaries. Pretty simple. It's like, this is the boundary. Don't, don't go outside. It. I'm like, okay. So that, I just tell them, ask that straight up. And here's what I've found over the years. Cause I mean, you're right. I come in as a volunteer. Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. You can't fire me. I don't work for you. Uh, they don't have to let me in there anymore, but the thing is, if I play within the boundaries that are given me, there's pretty wide uh, freedom in there. And that's pretty much it. Again, if you do things in a relational manner as opposed to a programmatic manner, that's what works mm-hmm. is people get it that you care about the people. Um, it's like when our head baseball coach died a few years ago, a number of years ago now, uh, they didn't call a local pastor to come to meet with the baseball club in the clubhouse no, no, they called me because they knew I get it. I know the head coach. I know the coaching staff. I know these guys and, and can connect and speak at baseball level, not just at the pastoral level. And that rang the bell in that very grievous situation. Sure. Also along the way, you served as a chaplain for Southern Illinois Miners. Mm-hmm. Sadly, no longer exists. But yeah, uh, certainly that environment is lots of roster churn. Mike, Mike Pinto uh, was a guest on the show and heard that podcast his approach and and how he he was very athlete first and yep. you know it might have cost him some ball games or some playoff chances, but he brought you were brought in. So mm-hmm. t- talk to me a little bit about your work in minor league baseball. I absolutely loved it. I've, I've been given an opportunity to talk with another group in, in a major city with a major league baseball club uh, just a couple of years before I went started serving the minors. And um, they asked me about this, and I was just getting ready to go to, on a trip to Cuba and other things. And I said, okay, guys, um, this would mean ministry with the NFL club, the NHL hockey team, and with – the major league baseball club and yeah, and some professional soccer too. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what a great opportunity that would be. But then the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, I thought, you know what, after this many years of serving in college sport where nobody makes any money, the first time $5 million bonus dude was rude to a seven year old about an autograph. I'd have a terrible time serving that guy. And so I, I, I looked them, looked it right in the eye, and I said, and beyond that, my wife's not going to move, and I'd have to get a new wife. That'd be a bad idea, and a bunch of other things. And I thought, you know what? I think I better stay right where I am. Well, shortly thereafter, after saying no to that phenomenal opportunity, all of a sudden the opportunity to serve the miners came up as the last guy I had left. They called me and said, would you consider doing this? And I said, well, tell me what that means, and tell me about the manager and all that. And they said, I said, let's do it. And went over there and met Mike the first day and clicked immediately. And man, I had a gas because guess what? Those guys playing frontier league, uh, independent baseball were very much like college kids. Mm-hmm. Some of them were in that same age range, but they didn't make a ton of money. They weren't pretending they didn't have a 
$5 million signing bonus to scrape through to get to their hearts. Standing around the batting cage at BP was gold. And opportunities happened every single day. It was it was just precious. Yeah. Well, in your work now, you mentioned the Cardinals. And the Cardinals are renowned. Uh, I'm a Midwest guy, so it's yeah. kind of hard to be here in Texas and be a Cardinals fan. <laughs> but they're renowned, A, for – Best fans in baseball. They understand the game. They know when to cheer. They're they're yep. courteous to yep. to guys who come back who used to wear the the birds on the bat. But they're also a culture organization. And in a season like this, Cardinal fans aren't used to them struggling. They aren't used to maybe a void of leadership. You know, a mm-hmm. guy like a Molina who absolutely is like an epicenter and a walking ambassador of the culture. That those are huge shoes to fill. And we were talking off camera before the start. In this day and age of of transfer portal and name, image, and likeness, coaches have to re-recruit their rosters yep. every day. So what do you do to help build culture or, or help coaches build culture so that they can kind of st- stem the flow, if you will? I, I've heard, yep. I heard that roughly uh, – 50% of all rosters turn over in a given season. And some, yep. some places it's worse than that. I think we lost of our 15 or so guys, we lost 10, uh, almost all to the portal or NBA. And and so it's, it's so hard to build a culture when the faces change year to year, you don't have a fourth or fifth year senior anymore. What do you do to help build that yep. from within and make that part of, of the organization you're working with? That's what I work hard to do with teams. And uh, I kind of, Developed, if I had a secret sauce, it was developed with Jerry Kill when he was a head coach here. We started in 01 and then 02. And then between those two, the 2002 and 2003 seasons, we were standing there in his office and talking for a moment. And he said, you know what, Raj, I don't think our guys know each other very well. And just on the edge of that comment, I started contemplating what does that mean and what what should be done about it. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, the best teams I've been around any, anywhere, any sport, anytime, they're great teams because they're committed to each other. Mm-hmm. The problem is human nature being what it is, we don't commit to people we don't trust. And we don't trust people we don't know. Mm-hmm. So if we go all the way back to Jerry's original question, I don't think our guys know each other. Very well. How are you going to build a team if they don't even know each other? You don't know that you know, number 62 is Mike Fritzler. How do do you get that done? And so I started working on a way to develop teams by first helping them know each other, get the facts of who each other are. Secondly, getting, getting their stories of their passion for the game out of them, that that's the stuff teammates trust about each other. That dude's a player. That guy gets it. All that stuff that's about the game will build trust over time, especially as they play, but more as they talk about it, what's important to you in that. And then thirdly, if I can get that guy to unzip his heart for a second and show us what's really important to him or what's at the core of who he is, that's what they'll commit to. Mm-hmm. That stuff that's a core of you, that's what they'll commit to. And so I work in the preseason to do that, who are you, get to know you identity kind of stuff first, then get to their passions. And then thirdly, get to their, the depth of what's at their middle of their soul. If I can get that out of them, that's when commitments get made. And that's what builds excellent teams. Hit the brakes right there. Let's recap because this is absolute gold to build a high performing team. You need trust, but trust never just sprouts in a vacuum. 
Let's go back to Roger's quote. We don't commit to people we don't trust, and we don't trust people we don't know. As a result, that first step is to help teammates get to know one another. From there, that second step is to allow them to connect with each other's why. Why they have a love for the game. What's their motivator that sets their heart on fire to compete. And from there, the last step is to create safety and a culture where members can be vulnerable with one another and pursue their goals together. Those are the seeds where trust can sprout. And any team that has trust has a shot at doing some pretty big things. Obviously, you have to have talent. Obviously, you have to have scheme. But this softer skill kind of stuff is what most coaches don't want to do and are not good at. But it makes room for a guy like me to come in and help develop that bond in the team. Absolutely. So, Coach Kill obviously has leveraged that to great success everywhere mm-hmm. he's been. Uh, Minnesota, now NMSU, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah, New Mexico uh, State. With uh, Mario as well. Yep. So say a coach is listening right now and they don't have access to you being in their office, helping you instill this. What would you tell them if, if they're trying to build this culture on their own? Where would you point them? Well, I would point them to their own resources they have right there at their hand. Uh, the ability to ask good questions. Because uh, that's my process. I don't tell them squat. I ask them questions. I mean, this is the uneducated guy using Socratic method to, I ask questions to lead in a direction for the discussion, and I get them to discover the truth I would have taught them anyway. Sneaky. Uh, I just get them to go along and I kind of facilitate the process by asking questions and follow-ups and, okay, where does this go? And get them to talk to each other. And they, it happens, but that's, it's not rocket science, but it's built on those three big ideas. Who are you? Get to that sense of who, who are you? Where are you from? What's, you know, background, all that stuff. Birth order. I ask them about all that kind of stuff and get those things out. One of the best things I do every year is I'll get guys to pull up their sleeves and say, tell us about your tattoos. And I get the real story on those guys from their tats. It's amazing. Learn more about them in five minutes talking about tattoos than I could have for months otherwise. But then beyond who are you, then what makes you go in the game? You can ask questions that pull out their passion for the game. You know, who's the best player you ever played against? Who's the best teammate you ever had? Tell me about the best team you ever played on, any sport, any time. What made that team great? Questions like that, get that stuff out of them. And then ultimately, I'm going to ask them questions like, if you could have a three-hour lunch with anybody on the planet, any living person, who would you pick and why? Well, some of the dudes are going to pose, and they're going to tell you a porn star or some celebrity, whatever, sit down. But some of them are going to open up their heart like Sean Smith did in probably 2002, three, number 75 from uh, Kansas. And he said, well, Roger, be my dad. And I said, why, Sean? Well, I knew why. His teammates didn't know why. He said, my dad died 10 days ago. I'd love to have lunch with him. Hmm. You think that team won't commit to that guy? Yeah. Freshman dude, he rips open his heart and bam, it's on. Yeah. One year I asked the question of the day was, okay, if you could switch lives with anybody for two weeks, you get his life, he gets your life for two weeks. Who would you pick and why? And Nick King, number eight from East St. Louis, Illinois, said, Roger, be my dad. I said, why, Nick? He said, my dad has diabetes. He just had a leg amputated. 
it'd be fun for my dad to know what it feels like to be a young man again. I love Nick King. Yeah. Right there. Like, that's awesome. That's worth 40 posers telling me other kind of crap. When Nick bears his heart, his teammates are going to commit to him. They're in that with that guy. Awesome. Such a great strategy. And, and you're right. We, we connect with people when we really know them. And when they have their masks on or a sport is, I've heard it described as maybe only second to the military. And mm-hmm. we have this false bravado, like it, it's weakness to be vulnerable. Oh, yeah. And, and what you're talking about, I mean, that's Brene Brown, that's vulnerability. Yep. And if you want to build a culture, we can't do it if we're all walking around armored up. Yep. And that kind of thing, I do this in locker rooms. I don't want coaches around. I don't want anybody else that they have to try to impress. It's them. It's their teammates. It's in the middle of multiple day practices. It's it's in the grind of the stuff that is that shared experience and these kind of moments that bond those teams together, just like mm-hmm. the military. It's the shared experience that really makes it happen. Yeah. So I'll make this personal. My son, uh, his team played in the state tournament. They mm-hmm. were final four. They lost uh, the, the semifinal. Uh, the guy they faced, probably the best high school pitcher I've ever seen. He was sitting wow. on 95, 96. I mean, he was just, he was slinging it. And they lost. And they had high hopes of being state champions. And our football team and our basketball team both won state this year as well. So wow. in a lot of ways, they're disappointed. They, they mm-hmm. failed. They have not finished the job what do you say to an athlete or to a team that doesn't reach the goal that they set out for themselves at the start of the year what i do is i ask him to go all the way back to the beginning and let's recall every place that we did something significant not just successes but significance what were those highlights along the way that you can point to and say that was a big day because x Uh, This is part of the mindset thing of uh, Dr. Dweck from Stanford talks about it's not necessarily the the event itself, but your retelling of the event that really sticks in your brain and becomes the long-term memory. So if I can get them to go back and recall those really significant moments, write them down, write the story, all that stuff that recalls for them all those significant moments through the season – that winds up being the enduring memory of the that whole season more than their sense of disappointment as how it finished. Uh, that's what I would tell them to do is go back. Let's recall these things. That's why I ask seniors, if you really want to make the best of your senior season, journal the thing. Every interaction with your teammates, every practice, every game, every bus ride home, write down what happened, and you'll be able to capture those memories in a rich way. Yeah. That's great advice. Well, I, I have a section of the show, and if you've listened, you've heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it, it's kind of that, that same idea. I, I, want, I want to get to know my guests and, and connect mm-hmm. with them. So I always ask the question, if we're playing a montage of your life, what music is playing in the background as the, uh, the person portraying young, middle-aged, and, and through, the, through the years, Roger, what, what song are they uh, toiling to? Easy. It is Pride in the Name of Love with Bono just banging it out. 
it's it's funny this this question either it elicits an immediate response somebody's <laughs> just got it right there or they're like i'm not really a music person i, I don't know maybe yeah. something with a good beat that's <laughs> funny because my son's ringtone on his phone when i call him is in the name of pride in the name of love by you too and that hits and i'm like good choice son out a boy what, what is it about that song specifically that resonates with you well about everything about you two is just full of passion. It's just guts on the line. Here it comes. Uh, not trying to be clever. Nope. Here it is. It's straight up. That was Keith Green back in the Jesus movement days and his Jesus music was just reeking of passion. And I mean, here's stoic German boy uh, growing up in the Southern Baptist church, kind of unfamiliar with passion, but those guys helped to draw that out of me. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I'm riding down the road in the car and I'm playing music, it's probably going to be something of that tenor. It's going to be Stevie Ray Vaughan at top volume, or it's going to be something else like that. Clapton, other things that just go pow, here it is. Yeah. Uh, that, that rings the bell for me. I may have this memory completely wrong. I was never a U2 fan until, I believe it was the Super Bowl after 9-11. Yeah. And they played the Super Bowl. And yep. I want to say it was in St. Louis. No, um, it was in New Orleans. New Orleans. It was in a dome. But they had this massive drop down, and they scrolled the names of the 9-11 victims while yep. you played. And I was, I mean, it was so powerful. And so I was kind of a fan from that moment on. So I, yeah. I, 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 I smell what you're cooking. <laughs> All right. So you've got a new book coming out. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, for about 40 years, I've been in the process of trying to make disciples. And most of the time that has been either a one-on-one -on -one or a small group process. And most of the time that has been approached from the church culture side with different exercises, different ways to go about that. But I've been living in sport culture now for about 29 years and so the more I'm in that, I fit sport culture better than I do church culture. And I'm thinking, how can I express more in a sporty way, respectful of the sporting life, a way to develop these same disciplines, these same processes and resources of developing one's life in Christ? How can I have that happen that fits the elite sports person? That's the whole idea. As I'm writing for this for guys like me to use with elite level players, that being in the U.S., collegiate level and pro, the rest of the world, it's like the good developing club level and pros. They're not like normal people. There are a number of things you must get to be able to even fit in their world. If you can do that, then you can do this other stuff. Well, so the first two thirds of the book is about here's who these people are and here's how you need to fit in with them so as to be heard. So that's the first two-thirds of the book. And then the next part is here are these exercises you can do. I'm, I'm even putting it in athletic language. These are exercises to do. These are drills to run. These are things like that that they go, oh, okay, I do this just like a drill. Bingo. You just run that drill every day. And so that's what it is going to be. That first part, here's what these people are like. You have to be able to fit these things just to be heard. And then here's some things that we know fit them because we've been using them for a number of years. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. So that's that's book number 15. Uh, my my aim is to have it to that point, uh, one June, to be able to launch and have it available this fall. 
Super. So that leads me to my last question. What for Roger Lipe is left undone? That book is something that's like uh, almost an opus. This is the thing I want to make sure this is done. Because as I was trotting the idea out at a bunch of my global friends around the world, I'm sending them a note. This is what I'm working on. Is this of interest to you? Because in most of their cases, I'm going to give it away. Because you know, in Chennai, India, they don't necessarily speak English. So I'm sending it to some of those friends. Uh, and I say, I'm going to send you the PDF. You may translate it. I have no profit motive in this. I'd love for you to use it in your country. And so they're already going. My friend in Chennai says, all right, I'm going to translate it into Hindi and two neighboring languages as well that surround Chennai. I'm going, wow. But I know my friends in Ukraine and in Poland and Russia and elsewhere want to use it. My friends in Latin America want to use it in Spanish. So that's one undone thing for me. I want to get this pushed out the door to where it's available uh, for them to use. Because a lot of the stuff that we do in the church just does not fit sport culture very well. It's, it kind of chafes like a bad sweater. They're going, yeah, I don't get this. But if we can put the jersey on that fits, they go, yes. I can run with this. Let's go. Yeah. That's what I want. Awesome. So how could uh, listeners connect? What, what, what's the best way to uh, catch your work? Yeah, the simple things are uh, you could catch my Twitter handle, at Saluki Chaplin. Pretty simple, at Saluki Chaplin. I have a blog, but it's way too wordy. The simple thing would be to email me at rlipe at nationsofcoaches.com. R-L-I-P-E at nationsofcoaches.com. I'd love to converse with coaches who want to talk about how do we do this team development stuff? Let's, I live to do that stuff. Um, there are a lot of coaches that say, I want a character coach. I just don't know how to make this happen. That's what I do for a living. I can help you figure that out regardless of sport, especially if you're in college basketball, men's or women's. That's my job. I can certainly help you find that and uh, help you develop that. Mm-hmm. Well, Roger, it is, uh, it's exactly as I expected. I always walk away from a conversation with you inspired and well, a little bit challenged to, uh, to, to get back after it. Your energy and, and your enthusiasm never disappoints. So thank well, you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Toby. It's been a pleasure. I'm loving listening to your podcast. Thank you. For Roger Light, it's been a fulfilling journey aligned with athletes and what he often refers to as the people of sport. And while his earliest plans of baseball stardom and even a career in sales didn't really pan out the way he'd planned, he doesn't view those as obstacles that have blocked his way, but rather opportunities that have springboarded him to success. The book is called Soul Training, Seven Keys to Coaching the Faith of Elite Sports People, and it can be found on his publisher's website, crosstrainingpublishing.com, as well as Amazon. For more info on today's episode, be sure to hit the undonepodcast.com website. Simply go to undonepodcast.com slash EP40 to see the notes, links, and images related to today's guest, Roger Live. I'll be adding more and more to the site in coming months, so be sure to check out every so often. I know there are great stories out there to be told, and I'm always on the lookout. So if you or someone you know has a story that we can all be inspired by, tell me about it. Surf on over to undonepodcast.com, click the contact tab in the top menu, and drop me a note. Coming up, educator, researcher, and former collegiate athlete Quincy Conley will share his tale of working his way up through the corporate America ladder and into higher education. I've also got legendary University of Washington strength coach and founder of the popular Iron Game Chalk Talk podcast, Ron McKeefrey, coming soon. 
as well as former Minnesota Timberwolf and Phoenix Sun Chris Carr. So stay tuned. This and more on Becoming Undone. Becoming Undone is a Nitro Hype creative production written and produced by me, Toby Brooks. If you or someone you know has a story of resilience and victory to share for Becoming Undone, contact me at undonepodcast.com. Follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Becoming Undone Pod, and follow me at Toby J. Brooks. Listen, subscribe, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, everybody, keep getting better. <laughs>